Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading it. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house, as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, life-giving, inspiring to His saints' word. Father, may we all be granted ears to hear. Oh, work, Father, by Your Spirit. Work and help me be faithful as a servant to the text and a conduit of your wonderful, loving, fatherly mercies of empowerment and presence in our midst by your Spirit. I ask this to the glory of your Son. In his name, I pray it. Amen. We arrived in chapter 3. And what I want you to do first is to notice the imperative verb in verse 1. Imperative, that's the verb, the mood of command. And it's the word consider. That's what we're supposed to do. Consider. Now notice how he ends the passage in verse 6. And we are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. The Christian life is a warfare. It's a battle against the powers of darkness and against our own sinful inclinations. And there are many casualties in this war. If you've been in the church world long enough, many of us know that yielding to sin habitually brings down many people. 
Others just slowly drift, gradually. They start neglecting time with the Lord. They start neglecting, hungering over the Word of God to consider it. Slowly, the crud of the world starts to build up in their spiritual arteries. And down the road, it just looks like, look, they just had a heart attack, a spiritual heart attack. But it it didn't happen overnight. It starts with no... I haven't spent much time with the Lord. I'm just kind of bored. I mean, I think, I guess I'm supposed to. It's what they tell me. I'm supposed to read the Bible. I'm supposed to go to church and sit subjected to a guy teaching or Bible study. Or, but, you know, it's been a while. Or if I'm even there, my mind is on other things. It starts like that. With, with, with other People, it just seems like they're on fire of the Lord. And then the next day, they've lost it. They've lost their first love. Oh, but they, they settle in. They settle into being a cultural Christian. Others, they feel hurt by the church. And thus, bitterness grows toward the body of Christ. And they do not endure to the end. The Hebrew Christians that he's writing to now, they, we see this in his book, they had been so on fire and empowered by the Spirit of the Lord that they were happily suffering persecution for for following Jesus. And for his sake. And now, the reason the letter's being written is they were in danger of drifting back into Judaism. Being subjected to Moses. And they were neglecting this great salvation. And so the author is exhorting them to endure, to hold firm that boast in Christ, that confidence in Christ, that faith in Christ. And basically, he does it for the rest of the book now. But the how to do that this morning in this text, his answer is this. Consider Jesus. Verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. This is what preaching is. This is what Bible studies are. This is what small groups are. This is what fellowship time are. This is what your quiet time is. This is what your Bible reading is. It is considering Jesus. 
And this command is not a command to the unbeliever here. It's a command to the holy brothers. The church, the Christians, the baptized. So why does he say to Christians, consider Jesus? Because that command and obedience to that command is part of the essence of Christian living. That's why he does it. That is what it is to be walking with Jesus. Every Christian's life is filled with the danger that we will stop contemplating, musing over, deeply thinking about, considering Jesus. And it's dangerous because we become more interested in other things that push it out. And we drift away from the Word. Those other things could be sports. They could be your children. They could be homeschooling. We can go on and on. And they could be the death knell ringing that you are dying spiritually. That's why the book of Hebrews calls us Christians again and again and again to consider Jesus. Consider it means to stop. Take some time and think about. Observe. Look it over. Turn it around. See it from a different angle. Something. Jesus used this word in Luke 12 when He said, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet, God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds. Now, I'm the kind of guy, unlike Andrew, who probably, unless I'm told to do something like that, I wouldn't have considered it. When you stop and you think, I guess birds don't till the land, plant seed, harvest, put it in barns, and they're not starving to death. God feeds them. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. And then his conclusion. Joe, aren't you much more valuable to God than the birds? Consider it. And then trust rises. Anxiety flees. But without Jesus telling me, I never stop to consider that. To consider something or anything requires effort. Time doesn't happen automatically because we all get too busy. 
I remember since my first trip to the Grand Canyon, I think it was 1987, I was in my 20s, and I have not ceased to praise the Grand Canyon when that subject ever comes up to tell people exactly how you got to do this now and how much time you need to spend and when you need to get to the canyon when you're going to go hike down into it because it is utterly spectacular. And I remember after that, a few years later, someone I know driving halfway across the country, they decided to take the detour and go over to the north rim of the canyon and they parked in the parking lot and you can't even see the canyon from the parking lot because it's, it's down and then you walk over 50 60 yards to the edge and the person did and looked at it for about two to three minutes big hole and went back to the car i was stunned This book is the Grand Canyon of God, of Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our Confession, our confession of faith in Christ. Now, apostle, he is called that. Why? Because apostle, it literally means one who was sent under the authority of another. And throughout the Gospel of John, if you know that book well, all over the place, Jesus constantly refers to himself as being sent by the Father. Like, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. He's the Apostle. He's our sent one. We cannot know God except through Jesus. We can't know salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. We, we cannot know Christ's righteousness for us except through the one who was sent. And as we have seen leading up to this passage, who became one of us, a very human being, to reveal as the mouthpiece all of these things to us. Consider Jesus the apostle. And consider Jesus as high priest, we know we've seen the last few weeks, he's already mentioned Jesus as the high priest in chapter 2, verse 17. So he is the, the apostle of our faith. Why? Because he brings down God to us as his mouthpiece. Remember how the letter opened up. God spoke. He spoke through many, many prophets in different ways. And now, in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, the Apostle. And He is the High Priest who brings us up to God safely. 
by presenting his own blood on the mercy seat, making propitiation for our sins and thus satisfying the just wrath of God against us so that we are now welcome in his holy, merciful presence. We're to consider that. And then if you read it carefully, you know, okay, he's got this main theological topic in our passage now that he really wants us to consider about Jesus. And that is this. Consider Gentile, but originally Jewish Christians. Consider that Jesus is infinitely superior to Moses. Think about it. Ponder it. Get it, is his point. He introduces the comparison between Jesus and Moses in verse 2. They were both faithful in God's house. God's house here is a metaphor for the people of God. Verse 2, consider Jesus who was faithful to Him who appointed Him. Here's the comparison. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So first, the comparison. Uh, they're both faithful before we get to the, to the contrast. For the Jews, there was no greater leader or figure than Moses. God miraculously kept him alive as a baby. God revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh at the burning bush. He sent him to deliver Israel, his people, from 400 years of slavery. He used Moses to bring down the ten plagues upon Egypt and to part the Red Sea. He struck the rock under God's command and water gushed out for the people. He went up on the mountain to commune with God and he received the Ten Commandments. He was given the blueprints for the tabernacle and how to construct it. And the priesthood and how it's to operate. And hundreds of other moral and non-moral laws. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. Okay, so the writer, he's not putting Moses down in any way. That is not his point. His point first is this, Moses, he was faithful in the household of God. Now, when he says that, he doesn't just pull that little metaphor out of his own mind. He's quoting one of the books of Moses, Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. Hear it again. Miriam, 
Aaron, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of Yahweh. So when the writer turns now to contrast Moses with Jesus, it really means something because Moses was not just another prophet. He was one of a kind in the Old Testament. And so now the writer goes on to show the superiority of the man, Jesus, over Moses. Verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So, the main point here is that although Moses was a great leader, he was just a member of God's house. Jesus was the builder of the house. Just do it again very carefully. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. In what way? As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. What he is saying is that Jesus is to the, the people of God as a builder is to the house. That's the man we're talking about. Moses is to the people of God as one of the people of God. And therefore Jesus is Moses' builder. Jesus made Moses. And then verse 4 goes on to make it even more explicit how great the man Jesus is. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Okay, he, he didn't just kind of take a rabbit trail. He's doing that purposefully. So just think about his logic. Verse 3 says, Jesus made the house of God. Verse 4 says that the maker of all things is God. Basic logic. Jesus, the Son of God, is God. That's how great He is. 
So without demeaning Moses in, in, in any way, the author is saying Jesus is in a totally different class. He's saying to these Jewish Christians tempted to go back to animal sacrifices in the temple and other cultural laws of Moses. He's saying, look, if you marvel at how Israel became a nation after 400 years of slavery through God's servant Moses, if you're amazed at how God used Moses to lead them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, then marvel all the more at the fact that Jesus designed the entire program. He's saying to them, hear this, first century Jewish Christians. This Jesus was at the burning bush. This Jesus was in the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. This Jesus fed the people manna for 40 years. While Moses is worthy of honor, he was faithful, Jesus is worthy of far, far more glory than Moses. Oh, converted Jews, do not turn back from Jesus to following Moses. Do not go back to being under the law of Moses. Consider Jesus, the high priest. And then in the text, he gives one more. One more reason for Jesus' superiority over Moses. Right there in verses 5 and 6. And, and it is this. As great as Moses was, and as faithful as Moses was to Yahweh, Moses existed and wrote and recorded all to lead to and to point to Jesus. Verse 5. For Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant in order to testify to the things that were to be spoken Later, for Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. The contrast is Moses was a servant. The Greek preposition in, we translate it in. He was a servant in God's house. Jesus is the son epi, over God's house. The, the servant is owned, the son is the inheritor, the ruler 
of all. As a servant, Moses' role was to, quote, testify to the things in the future. To the things that were to be spoken later. He's already said it at the beginning of the book. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Stunning. You remember how Jesus rebuked the Bible-thumping Pharisees? If you believed Moses, his point is, you don't believe Moses. You can't even see what Moses was about. If you believed Moses, you would believe in me. Because Moses wrote about me. Moses was just a servant pointing ahead to Jesus. And that means Moses, the person, it means Moses, the law. It means the tabernacle and then the temple in the priesthood, in the rituals, in the Sabbaths, in the new moons, and the kosher diets. It was all pointing. It, it means your condemnation. Starting with the Ten Commandments, which bring to you a curse. It's all pointing to Jesus. Moses was faithful. He was a servant, and that was his job. And Jesus came. And that time of fulfillment is now in Him. The goal, the telos of the law. The deliverer from the curse of Moses the law. And so, consider Jesus because He's greater, infinitely greater than the law of Moses. So now we go back again where we started. Just concentrate on it. Okay, who? Who's supposed to be doing this? Considering. Verse 1 again. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's the answer. Now, of course, brothers goes back to chapter 2, verse 11. Remember when the writer said, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, the sanctified, to call them brothers. Sanctified, it means set apart. Those who have been set apart, who have been sanctified, 
brought into the family with a unique, intimate relationship with Jesus as, as your brother. And that's why he modifies brothers here with the word holy. Holy brothers. Sanctified and holy come from the same well, word group in Greek. Hagias. Paul dresses Christians, not with the word Christian. He uses the word hagioi, the plural. Saints, or set-apart ones, or holy ones. And so those saints, the holy brothers, it, it's not a special class of extraordinary Christians. It is referring to all true believers, holy brothers. And then the next way he, he defines the Christian, those who are partakers of a heavenly calling. Christians are people who have heard a heavenly calling. I can't give that to you. As a servant in the house of God, I can give to you a faithfulness of a earthly calling. It's called the gospel. Come. Delight yourself in the Lord. Be saved. Turn from your sin and put all your trust in Jesus. But then there's this heavenly calling. And all who are in Christ, they share in that. They're partakers of that calling. It's a heavenly calling because it comes from God. And it's a calling that <laughs> brings us to God. And Christians are people who have been gripped by this calling. The Word of God, the Gospel of God broke through our hard-hearted resistance and it took hold of us with truth and with the love of Christ. And He reconciled us to God. And He's now leading us home to heaven. And this means that God, He has spoken from heaven to us through His Apostle, Jesus. His words, His living, His death, His resurrection, and, oh my goodness, He has made a way to heaven through His high priest, Jesus. And He called us. He called us so that we would believe and our hope their confidence is firm. Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. The confession of a Christian. The Christ, Yahweh, became man. And He suffered 
And He died on a cross bearing the wrath of God that was toward me. Or anyone who would believe. And God raised Him on the third day. And He justifies all who have faith in Jesus. That's our confession. And this is what we've been doing this morning. Considering. Considering Jesus. But the point of the considering Jesus is so that we who are here today would, would apply that superiority of Jesus to ourselves. Today. Tomorrow. I mean, the, the way the writer says it in this book, right? You know it. As long as it's called today, it's pretty much every day you, if you wake up and you're not dead, still today, call on the name of the Lord. And so this is why he finishes this portion this way in verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are presently his house. Then he throws a wrench into it all. It trips people up. We are, we belong to him. We're saved. We're Christians. If indeed, if truly, we hold fast, firm. Our confession and our boasting in our hope. The church of Jesus Christ is the house of God today. Just as it was in Moses' day, in Jesus' own day, in AD 64, when this was written, it is today. The house of God, His people. This very morning, Jesus is our maker, our builder, our owner, our ruler, our provider. He is the Son. We are servants. We are the household of God. Moses is one of us in this house. He's our fellow Servant. And so the text concludes, we're His house. We're His people. I belong to Jesus. We're, we're partakers of a, of a heavenly calling. If. If indeed, it's true. If, indeed, we hold firm our confidence, our faith, our trust, 
and are boasting in our hope of the gospel. What life is really all about. The evidence that we are part of the household of God is that we don't throw away our hope. That's the evidence. You don't abandon Christ. The writer will say it this way in chapter 10. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. We all do. So that when you have done the will of God, that is, endured in faith, in trust, in clinging to the hope of Christ throughout your life, when you have done the will of God, that you may receive. Finally, it's there, it's future. What is promised? Becoming a Christian and being a Christian happen in the same way. There's not a next track you get on. It's called faith. Walking by faith. Walking that is propelled by this otherworldly sense. That death of Christ. And yeah, I believe something that is kooky to the world. That the dead human being after three days was resurrected. The same body to a new immortal human existence. And He's promised me that in mercy and joy of His Father forever. That's what we're promised. And that's what brings a person to Christ. That's what they believe in. That's why they get baptized. I've died with Him. I've risen with Him. I know Him. He raised me already spiritually to Himself. I have heard the heavenly calling. I'm His. Well, how do you know that's real? You watch the rest of the life. And for everyone it's real. They will. Persevere. Trust me, we ain't done with that issue. Because, I mean, the Hebrew writer just... He's causes many people to just go off the rails and to, to, to misunderstand. When I say he causes, I'm saying if they don't read carefully, people think, huh. But I'm going to tell you what the Hebrew writer is all about. He knows that if you belong to Christ, you can never be lost. And it doesn't prevent him from saying, if indeed... We hold fast our confession, our confidence in the 
boasting of our hope in our Jesus. And so here, let me close it this way. This is the exhortation to us all from this passage. Consider Jesus. Make it, always make it preeminent in your life. You will never grow to a place where you have no need for contemplating Jesus. So if Jesus, if, if the Bible, if time with God, if prayerfully meditating over the Scripture, if, if desperately putting Him first place above your work and your parenting, your romancing, your play, if considering Jesus is not first in your routine, then change. That's what we all got to constantly hear. To use the words of Jesus, pluck out your eye. Cut off your arm if it causes you not to consider Jesus preeminently in your life. If it causes you to stumble. Hope in Jesus. That's the evidence today. You belong to Him. With all your sin. With all your imperfections. With all of the room you have left that I could consider him more. If you sit there and you know, gosh, I love him. In all your imperfections, I, I, I know him. You're his. You're his. And because you know that he called you. With a heavenly calling, you can lay your head down tonight and know if left to yourself, you would abandon him in a nanosecond. But you know you won't because you're his. Oh, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, go on considering. Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful. So thankful that you had this letter we call to the Hebrews written for us your house, your church, your people. We thank you for the constant preeminence of our Savior, your beloved Son, Jesus.
constantly high, lifted up in order to appeal to the affections of our hearts. We thank you that we're called to boast only in Jesus, who was our deepest consideration. We thank you for your constant work, Holy Spirit, in our lives, purchased by you, our Lord Jesus, upon a cross. Amen.